last thing that I said to him was, in a body you need breath and love. And when you leave a body, all you need is love. So when you're ready, go out on the love. And he took four breaths and did. This is Before It's Too Late. I'm your host, Christiane Suzanne. Let's learn together what matters most in life. It makes us very happy to speak with Alison Penner, aka Bad Widow, in our first episode in 2022 today. As a primary caregiver until her husband of 25 years died in her arms at home, Alison learned a lot about living fearlessly, even in the face of death itself. In this very honest conversation, she's sharing with us how she and her husband, after the terminal diagnosis of cancer, managed to live every minute like it would be their last, until it was their last, and how they recommitted their love to each other before it was too late. You will hear from her how she overcame her fear of living without him after his death, of being alone until the rest of her life, and how she overcame it. I was impressed by how frankly Alison is talking about her experiences as a widow when she faced pervasive assumptions that she was broken by her loss, perhaps forever, and how she felt isolated and lonely but could not find resources at first to solve how to reconnect, get back to work, and even open up to love again. She's taking us through her journey of recreating herself, a new life, and eventually finding love again. And she's also talking very openly about the shame and judgment that exists around being happy again as a widow. In order to share her learnings and help others, Alison began badwidow.com, a space for people who suffered a loss too. We will also learn why Alison calls herself a bad widow. Her recently published number one best-selling book, The Bad Widow Guide to Life After Loss, Moving Through Grief to Live and Love Again, is now available on Amazon. Please enjoy this meaningful conversation with Alison Penner on Before It's Too Late Today. Hello, Alison. Great to have you on Before It's Too Late Today. Thank you so much, Christiane. Alison, you are a lifelong New Yorker. You are a grief resilience coach. You are a number one best-selling author on Amazon. You are a global speaker and you have an amazing story calling yourself a bad widow. You were a primary caregiver until your husband, with whom you have been together for 25 years, died in your arms at home after battling pancreatic cancer for almost a year. And this is really what I would love to hear more about today, how you experienced that tragic event in your life and um, how you transformed into a completely different life and person. So I would be really, really curious Alison, tell us more about the time when your husband was dying. How did that feel? It must have been totally overwhelming to fear the loss of your husband. Yes. He was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer in October of 2015, October 12th. Mm -hmm. 
you don't forget these dates, you know. Mm-hmm. And then he died in my arms at home on September 10th, 2016. And when he was diagnosed, we were just in shock. Absolutely in shock. The doctor said, you know, slow down, stop doing things, um, basically get ready to die. They don't say that, but that's basically the communication. And for us, he chose chemo. So I, you know, rearranged my life to go to his chemo appointments and all of that. And it didn't make sense to us what the doctor said. So if his, if the end of his life was coming much faster than either of us had planned, Mm -hmm. why wouldn't we live it? And so it was this enormously heartbreaking experience to go through his going from 263 pounds to 146 pounds to, he had this fabulous black hair and one day he was riding the city bike and it flew off his head and his eyelashes came off his eyes and cut into his eyes. And Mm. he came home just heartbroken. As a caregiver, the helplessness to do anything about that is awful. But the upshot of it was that we decided that if we could literally see the end of his life, and it was not years, it was months or weeks, and we didn't know how much time we had, we were going to live it. Full tilt boogie. Mm -hmm. So he loved to paint and play tennis. He was a painter, right? Oh, he was a painter. He left me 546 paintings and uh, had a studio. So we had a studio and an apartment. And the studio he had been in for uh, decades, about 30 years. But we decided to really live. So I encouraged him to, if he wanted to go and play tennis, go play tennis. But go play tennis for two hours instead of six. Because his energy was waning. As he was dying in the last about two weeks before he died, I told his friends to come and visit him right away because otherwise they were going to miss it. And I literally said, he is dying. And there is a limited time for you to see him. So if you want to see him, make it a priority. And some did, some didn't. But for us, it was important for him to be able to do the things he loved. He kept painting. He finished his last piece of art the Thursday before the Saturday he died in my arms. And he was weak. I mean, he looked skeletal. For me... It was important for me to remember that I wasn't just a caregiver and I wouldn't just be a widow. One of the things that I gave up early in our relationship, because he just didn't love it as much as I did, was I loved doing singing at open mics, singing Mm -hmm. in piano bars. It's one of my great loves. And he didn't love it. And so increasingly, I just didn't do that. In those 11 months when he was dying, I um, did two workshops and sang on four stages in cabaret shows, singing three songs, 
myself on stage. Now, I cried through every rehearsal, and I was sad when I was on stage, but it was important for me to remember that I was other things. So one of the songs I sang was I Am Woman. The Tuesday before he died, I sang I Will Survive. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Really, really, Alison. Talking about it, I hear an, this um, tremendous inner strength to be relatively fearless in face of the experience to um, that we fear all, which is losing a beloved one and death in, in general. That's what we all fear. So this tell I'm, I'm really curious, tell us more about that fearlessness. What lessons did you learn about living fearlessly when your husband was dying? Well, the fearlessness was really interesting because for us, it didn't make sense if he was going to die and he was going to die soon. And our time together was going to come to an end soon. Why would we not live every minute like it was the last minute? Because we didn't know what the last minute was going to be. And so for each of us, one of the things that happened and one of the things that happens with grief is that those things that really matter rise up. In 25 years together, some of our relationship was about whose turn is it to do the dishes and who takes out the trash? Well, I think that's very relatable, what you just said. <laughs> yeah. And so the love gets, gets buried under that. And so in those last months, what we did was we recommitted to our love for each other. Now, that didn't change the fact that it was really hard. When he was angry about what was happening, that anger got taken out on me. Mm. I was the one who loved him, and I was the one who was not going to leave no matter what. And he knew that. So we had some really hard times, and we had some really intimate, incredible, heart-opening times together. And the so the last morning, he had been on oxygen for 10 days. And I heard the, the theme song from Ghost, and I thought, it's going to be today. I just knew it was going to be that day. And so I took him in my arms, and his head was on my shoulder, and we were at home. It was just us. And we had been talking about filling up with love across these 11 months, how love was the most important thing, the thing that goes beyond bodies. And uh, so I said, you know, stay as long as you want and leave when you want. And he asked me a whole bunch of questions. Well, what about my mom? His mom is currently 98. I'm her primary caregiver. I said, I'll take care of it. What about my studio? What about my paintings? What about you? So he asked me all these questions and I said, you know, I've got it. I will take care of everything. Oh, Alison, this is, I think this, this is so powerful and so deep. And I think it cannot get any more existential to experience 
that, what you just exactly said. And do you, I've, I always ask myself, do we need really death or the, the, the dying process of our beloved ones in order to be able to remind ourselves of what's really important, what really matters? What do you think? Well, I think it helps. There's, there's a question that I hear from time to time. What would you do if tomorrow was the last day of your life? And we, we were living that. And the truth of the matter is some tomorrow will be the last day of everyone's life. Some tomorrow, everyone will lose someone they love if they haven't already. So we act like the fact that our bodies are finite is not just a truth. We act like it's something to be afraid of. And so there was a way in which it was a real gift to have, okay, the most important thing is love. Okay, what really matters to us? And how do we prioritize that? Because sometimes life gets to be about logistics. Go to work, you make the money, you come home, you go out to social events, you have family gatherings. There are all these things that we're doing disconnected actually from what we're doing. And the, the, the ending of life creates this longing to live and this real reprioritization of what matters. And one of the things that I think we're seeing today in this kind of global crisis that we've been in, this global grief crisis that we've been in, is this rising up of what matters in people. That is so true. So tell me more about the time thereafter. How did you handle all the mental and emotional health challenges you experienced afterwards, like overwhelming feelings and unreliable energy, ups and downs, I can imagine, and you're feeling broken, probably. Tell us more about the time thereafter. Yeah. Um, right after my husband died, I was talking to a friend of mine who was a doctor, and I was ready to rush into doing stuff. You know, I had this heartbreaking, heart-opening moment. And then I was going to rush and call the crematorium and call his mother and call my mother and call, do all this doing this. And this friend said, you don't have to do any of that. You can take the time that you need right now for yourself. And so I stopped and I held my husband for a while. And then I got up and I left him on the bed and I walked around the apartment and did things. But I gave myself the time to sort of integrate what had happened. And I still didn't know what it meant. I had been a wife. I was with the same man 25 years. And now I was a widow. And I had no idea what that was. Yeah, you have a total total new identity to build, right? You don't, you didn't even know who you were by and for yourself, right? Exactly. I mean, when you're 25 years, you're, you're more of an us than a you. Mm. And so the question was, who was I? 
there were lots and lots and lots of emotions. The first year, and a lot of this is in my book, um, The Bad Widow Guide to Life After Loss, Moving Through Grief to Live and Love Again. But the first year was a lot of grief, was, you know, waking up in the morning and in my dreams, feeling him at my back, and then waking up to that raw grief again. And it was overwhelming. Um, fear. The future that we had built together was gone. And I could not see any possibility for a happy future, you know, going forward. Was I going to be a cat lady? Was I going to be alone the rest of my life? Mm. We didn't have children. So mm. I, I missed touch desperately. So my friends who are widows who had children, they got hugs from their children. Nobody touched me for the most part. And you don't think about that until it's gone. It was desperately sad not to experience human touch on a regular basis. And what did you do? Which steps did you take, Alison? to slowly reinvent yourself after the loss. Yeah, I, I started looking at how I was going to come through this as best I could so that, and, and you know, the thing that I kept telling myself was this pain must serve. This can't just be awful. There has to be some purpose for this. So the first thing was to figure out What fed me? How did I find solid ground in myself? Sort of reconnect to who I was, not actually knowing what that was. But I knew that when I was with community and serving community, that really worked for me. So working my way through and sharing the journey, that was really helpful. The next thing was uh, to re-engage in the world. I was not able to be with a lot of people. I was not able to do very many activities. I had no energy. I couldn't remember things. I remember once I asked my mom seven times when she was coming to see me mm. in a row. And the second after she answered, I forgot. Yeah, it was bad. I couldn't focus on anything. So this made it difficult to work, made it difficult to connect with people. When people would call me, remembering to call them back, if I didn't do it right then, it made it hard for me to remember to eat. I had about five seconds after I thought I was hungry to get to the kitchen. So I started developing some really practical things to make it easier for me because all that I could usually count on I could usually count on my body. I could usually count on my mind. You know, I was a capable, effective person. And then I wasn't. And it was devastating to lose myself so fully that I was unrecognizable to myself. Except that the people around me, they looked at me and I looked like the same person. Yeah. And, and do you remember what exactly then you did? Did you just wait until it became better? Or 
was there a moment when you said, okay, I deliberately recreate, reinvent my new life, my personal network, my professional network. Um, you started to, to call yourself a bad widow. I'm really interested to learn why you think you are a bad widow. And given, <laughs> <laughs> and given the great life you're living now in a new relationship, and you you totally transformed into a new thriving life and person. Um, so we would really like to learn what steps exactly did you take then that really made it happen for you? And why is that bad, Alison? <laughs> <laughs> well, what I discovered is that people have a lot of assumptions that they make about someone who's grieving, like that they're broken and they may never come back. And the truth is that they will never come back as they were before because grief changes us forever. It just does. And so the, there was a point at which I knew that I was not going to bounce back. I wasn't going to be able to be that person again. I could get back to capable, but I couldn't get back to who I was, among other things, because the person I was that person with was gone. That person I was for 25 years, that person could no longer exist because my partner had died. So re-engage was just to start getting back out into the world. If I had been doing very few activities to maybe reach out to a friend and schedule lunch once a week, or maybe uh, go for a walk or begin to do more than I had been doing. The, the trick was that some days I had lots of energy, some days I had no energy. So the days when I had lots of energy, I did as much as I could because I couldn't count on the next day being the same. My, my body and my mind were very unreliable in this moment. And, and one of the things that that created, which has lasted these last five years, is a fear that that could happen again. Because it was so sudden. So a fear that my mind would let me down, that I would not be able to remember or focus. I had done um, work as a proofreader, uh, editor, which is very detailed, focused work. But I had no memory. I had no energy. And I couldn't focus. So I was unable to do any of that work. I couldn't deal with people for a long time. And my capacity to deal with people is still smaller than it was before my husband died. And that's more than five years ago. Um, and so I just took a job in the General Assembly at the UN as an assistant editor proofreader for that period of time, temporary appointment. And I had done that work for decades. So I knew it. I knew I could do it before my husband died, but then everything failed me when he died. And I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to do it, except that the only way to find out if I could was to try. And it was fine. I did a great job at the UN, but there was that fear 
when I accepted the assignment that I wouldn't be able to from the past, right? So grief has really long, long-term effects sometimes. We contract when we're hurt, when we're in pain. We contract our lives, our activities, our relationships, everything. So I had to start deliberately pushing out. And in this time of grief crisis, that's what we're going to need to do. doesn't happen automatically. The second thing was to reinvent myself. Why did I have to do that? Because I had no idea who I was. I knew who I was with Dave, my husband. But he was gone. So I was now something else. And in the course of the time when he was dying, I learned what mattered to me. And so the things that I did, among other things, I chose to begin carving out a path as a grief resilience coach. Because I knew that I could take people when they hit that tipping point where they decided to take back their lives but didn't know how. I knew how to do that. I knew how to take people through that. And then the last thing, it's really, really common for people who have lost, especially a spouse, to lose friends and family. There are a number of reasons why this happens. In the first two years, especially, when it's overwhelming grief, fear, anger, shame, a lot of grief in the first year. So a lot of tears, which make people uncomfortable. And then in the second year, zero to rage in five seconds. None of these are comfortable to be around. And so you lose people. You lose friends. You lose family. And sometimes they just step back. Sometimes they're willing to just stay through the storm. And sometimes they leave. And so these networks that we depend on to support us in times of crisis like this get holes. And so the last thing that I did was I discovered how to rebuild networks, how to communicate what was actually needed by getting clear on the most important things that were needed. So was that with new people then or with the same old family and friends? It was both. Okay. It was both. So I matched my networks to what I needed. So I needed people to go out and do something social with. I needed someone to go exercise with. I needed um, help financially. I needed help with work. I needed everything. <laughs> So and you articulated work, it very specifically, what you needed and what you wanted. Yes. What I discovered was that clarity was a superpower. The problem with that is when you're grieving, you have no idea what you want except that person back. Hmm. And so how do you figure that out? So that's why reinvent is important. It's experimenting, trying different things to figure out what matters. Then once you know what matters to you, then maybe you want someone to go and do those things with you. And then you find that person, right? Until you are aware of what you need, you don't know who to look for. 
And okay. And now, why are you a bad widow? <laughs> <laughs> I am a bad widow because very typically people just go along with what people say. The experience of people around someone who's lost a person are that they keep saying and doing the wrong things. And most widows, in my experience, will say, you know, thank you for your kind words. I really appreciate that. And it can be simple things that would make me angry. So I heard pretty often, how are you? That seems like a really nice thing to say to someone that has lost a person. Except that I couldn't answer it. The man I was with who loved... I loved for 25 years was dead. I couldn't see a future without him. How do you think I am? So how are you was too long a time horizon for me to answer. And so what I did as bad widow was I said, you know, I can't answer that. I was actually truthful. I can't answer that. I can answer. How are you right now? How are you today? How is your week going? I could answer a short time horizon question. And people are getting it wrong because nobody talks about it. So Bad Widow was to communicate what was actually true so that people could reconnect in an authentic way. Another thing that happened was I would burst into tears and someone would say, I didn't mean to make you cry. And my angry thought was, believe me, I've got bigger problems than you. And I told the truth. You, it wasn't you. Sometimes I just cry. And this was really important when I was going to family gatherings where people really wanted me to be okay. They wanted to care for me and they didn't know how. And so if I was bursting into tears a lot. And I could say, look, it's not you. Sometimes I just cry. It's really important for me to be able to cry, to let the grief out, to let it move through my body. And then actually give them some direction about what I needed from them. Would be really great if this happens, if you could come over and just give me a hug. It would be really great if you would just let me be. Because they didn't know and they felt helpless. And so they would say and do stupid things. Yeah, which is, which is normal because we live in a totally death and grief denying society. And we in our modern societies never learned neither how to grieve nor how to offer help to, to others that had a loss, right? So exactly. Yeah, that's why it's great that you dedicated your time in your new life into helping others how to properly grieve. Yeah, I think it is because it's something that we're not taught. The fact of the matter is that every single person on the planet will grieve at some point in their life. Yes, exactly. So Guaranteed. Yeah, yes, so true. And you help making people aware of that. And um, 
that's what I hope I can do with this podcast too, because that's what it's all about, the, the awareness, the consciousness. Bad Widow, everybody's got an opinion. So I had people who said that I should be dating after four months. I had people who, when I started dating after a year and a half, two years, said that was too soon. Everybody's got an opinion. And there's a lot of judgment and shame over, especially if it's a spouse, over seeking new love. And the thing that was interesting, and this was the hardest, hardest thing that I did, was to open up to, to love again. Because it felt like a betrayal. We think of joy as, well, you just feel joy. But when you've lost someone, sometimes, usually, the joy and the grief rise at the same time. It doesn't make it less joy, but doing something without the person that you loved also brings up the grief. And so every time I felt desire, every time I felt like I was beginning to fall in love with someone, the grief rose. Grief, shame. How dare you move on without him? Interesting. It was really strange. Um, and I had been with this one man for 25 years, so I'd only had this man's arm around my waist. This man's lip, lips kiss me. And so anyone else felt wrong. And in relationships, very often we depend on, well, if the chemistry's right, you'll just know. But my chemistry couldn't be trusted. I had an experience of revulsion when I was touched by someone other than my husband, even though he was dead. Even though my mind knew he was never going to touch me again. If I wanted love, it was going to be with somebody else. And yet I would have this, get back, don't touch me. And so I had to choose to move through these really hard moments of pushing back against feeling desire, pushing back against being touched, even though I wanted it. It was very tough. And the thing that made it possible was that my only promise was that I would communicate clearly what was going on. The other thing that got us through was that every time I would have this reaction that was a weird reaction, not a, not a common reaction, if you desire someone and they desire you, having an experience get back from me doesn't make any sense, logically, right? Hmm. I'd have these reactions and I would ask myself, is it me, is it him, or is it us? The key to that question was that then I knew what to do next. So the awareness is important, but then knowing what are some practical steps that you can take to push forward and out and past the grief. And it's not always easy. I'm, I'm not going to pretend that it was. 
It was heartbreaking and heart opening. And I have now been with my boyfriend for three years. And we have a really strong, really extraordinary relationship because we communicate what's true. And Bad Widow is about being true to what is really going on. Yes, I can hear that in each of your words. And I love the boldness with which you honestly tell what really the challenges are. Because on the surface, we always say, yeah, we moved on, we moved on. But what that really means is a different story. And I love how honestly you are about all that, Alison. Given that you now totally reinvented yourself, you wrote this amazing book. I'll definitely put in the description. And um, you're now managing the, the um, legacy of the paintings of your husband. Um, you do all sorts of other amazing stuff. You're thriving. Um, how do you want to re be remembered? What's the legacy you want to leave behind other than money? So my legacy is to reframe how we deal with grief in our world. Because currently we deal with someone who is grieving a loss as broken. And what I know is that every single person has an innate resilience where they can come back and thrive. We may not know how, we may not be taught how, but I want to remove the shame around grief and make it something that is heartbreaking, but also heart opening, which creates new possibilities. So that's my legacy, reframe grief in the world forever. <laughs> I love that, Alison. I love that. Is there anything else you want to add on to our today's wonderful conversation? Um, You can find me at badwidow.com if you want to connect with me. And the thing that people need in the world most right now is to reconnect with each other. It's been a really hard two years. And so I'm starting to pull together some resources to help people with that. Thank you so much, Alison, for sharing your truthful and wise and bold thoughts. I really, really appreciate that. And I'm sure many of the listeners will learn a lot from that and will be resonating with that. Thank you so much, Alison, for having been my guest on Before It's Too Late today. Thank you so much, Christian. I really enjoyed this profound conversation and I hope you did too. For more episodes of Before It's Too Late, make sure to subscribe. If this episode spoke to you, consider sharing it with a friend or loved one you think might benefit from it. Thank you for listening.